Warning, this episode contains instances of addiction, death, racism, and violence. Listener discretion is advised, and extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. In December of 1970, former heavyweight champion Sonny Liston and his family were living in Las Vegas, the capital of second chances. But Liston's chances seemed to be used up. He had lost to Muhammad Ali in a heavyweight rematch back in 1965. In the first-round knockout, Liston was leveled by a so-called phantom punch few spectators even saw. That suspicious defeat would follow Liston for the rest of his short life. Now, the 43-year-old boxer had difficulty booking fights. He was nearly broke and had been dealing drugs and collecting debts for loan sharks just to make ends meet. Liston was also drinking heavily. He used marijuana, cocaine, and gambling to help numb the pain. And recently, he'd lost $10,000 betting on a fight, nearly his entire purse from his last fight. As if this wasn't hard enough, Liston's marriage was in shambles. On Christmas Eve, his wife Geraldine took the kids to her father's house in St. Louis, Missouri for a visit. When she returned home on January 5th, 1971, Geraldine found newspapers and milk bottles piled up outside their front door. An unpleasant odor filled her nose as she stepped inside. It was Liston. He was upstairs in the bedroom, and he'd been dead for days. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. Every week, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our final episode on The Phantom Punch, a questionable first-round knockout that ended the 1965 rematch between Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston. Last episode, we discussed the hard-scrabble life of Charles Sonny Liston and his dominance of the heavyweight division. We also covered his rematch with Muhammad Ali and its dubious outcome. This episode, we'll explore some of the conspiracy theories surrounding that debacle. Like conspiracy theory number one, with the betting odds nearly three to one for Liston to win, the Mafia forced him to throw the fight so they could clean up a tidy sum. Conspiracy theory number two, Liston deliberately threw the fight, either because he'd bet against himself or because he simply didn't want to go. And conspiracy theory number three, members of the Nation of Islam threatened to harm Liston and his family if he beat their champion, Muhammad Ali. We'll also look into Sonny Liston's mysterious death and the sinister question it raises. 
Did Liston's underworld affiliates finally catch up with him? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Boxing's unscrupulous reputation dates back decades. Fixes and payoffs were said to play a role in many fights with suspicious outcomes. Sometimes these rumors were sports gossip, and sometimes they weren't. But many believe the heavyweight title bout between Ali and Liston belonged in the former category. To recap, midway through the first round, Ali threw a quick right hand. Hardly anyone saw it make an impact. And yet... Sonny Liston fell forward, flopping around on the canvas like an injured boxer. It was Ali who first dubbed the blow the Phantom Punch. But he didn't mean it suspiciously. It was supposed to be a boast about his stealth. A punch so sneaky, so fast, that no one saw it coming. It was only later that the press gave it a negative connotation, as the punch that never even existed. Our deep dive into what happened that night begins with that punch. Why was it so suspicious to begin with? As we've mentioned, barely anyone at ringside saw the punch land. But let's imagine that it did. At the time, Ali was on his toes and moving backwards, which only negated his punching power. The young champion was never a one-punch knockout artist. He'd never before or after taken out an opponent with a single blow. So, assuming Ali's punch was real, it had to be a once-in-a-career exception. Former champion Jack Sharkey was one of those people sitting ringside. He conceded that Ali did land a punch, but he insisted it wouldn't have knocked out my grandson. And sports writer Jimmy Cannon considered the punch not hard enough to crush a grape. The official story claims the punch was genuine and that Liston went down with it. But assuming it wasn't very powerful, why did Liston fall? This brings us to conspiracy theory number one. 
the Mafia forced Liston to throw the fight while betting heavily against him. They did this in order to collect a big payout from bookmakers. Sports betting was and still is big business. With so much money at stake, sports have always attracted a criminal crowd. And with any sport, there's usually an instance where the bets have been tampered with. Here's how it works. Any team or player with more bets in their favor is called a favorite, and betting against a favorite nets a big payout. Let's say you bet $1,000 against a team that's a 3-to-1 favorite. If they win, you're out $1,000. But if they lose, you get $3,000. These outcomes are impossible to know before the match unless they're arranged. This is called fixing, and it occurs when contestants are bribed or threatened to underperform. Team sports are difficult to fix because there's a lot of variables, like the number of players. But boxing is relatively easy. You only have to fix one athlete, and it's even easier when you own a piece of them. Last episode, we talked about one of Liston's friends, a St. Louis labor racketeer and mobster named John Vitali. Before Liston's career took off, Vitali hired him to work construction and act as his personal driver. He was also said to be Liston's manager, but their relationship went deeper than that. In 1960, five years before the Phantom Punch, Liston was called to testify in a Senate hearing. Kentucky Senator Estes Kefauver had been investigating the mob's influence over interstate commerce and other lucrative enterprises, including boxing. During the hearing, Kefauver alleged that Liston was managed by Vitali, along with mobsters Blinky Palermo and Frankie Carbo. To this, Liston replied, How could they all? Gee whiz, there wouldn't be nothing left for me. Liston was being glib. He did have multiple managers off the record, and they each took a percentage of his earnings, cuts that far exceeded Liston's piece of the pie. And despite earning millions in his career, Liston was often in debt. Kefauver didn't buy Liston's response. In his closing remarks, the senator called Vitali, Carbo, and Palermo as vicious a group of racketeers as had ever appeared on the boxing scene. At any rate, these weren't great associations for Liston to have, and despite his performance at the hearing, his mobster pals may have coerced him into throwing the 1965 rematch. For one, there were reports leading up to the fight. Allegedly, Vitali had told friends not to bet on Liston, his own fighter, a man once seen as invincible and favored by bookmakers to regain the title. It didn't make any sense, but supposedly, Vitali insisted that the fight wouldn't go past the first round. A bold prediction for any competitive bout, but one that would happen to come true. It's a solid theory, but it has holes, starting with Liston himself. Three days before the fight, Liston called his friend Johnny Toko, a boxing trainer out of Las Vegas, without any mob ties. Supposedly, Liston told Toko, Load up on the fight, because I'm going to kill that bum this time. 
Toko later insisted that Liston would have never told him to bet on him if he knew the fight was fixed. But it's possible Liston didn't even know about the fix until the very last minute. Witness and photographer Paul Abdu said he saw two, quote, white gangster types entering Liston's dressing room moments before the bout was to begin. Years later, Abdu told his son that he believed these men were sent to coerce or even threaten Liston into losing. But there's little evidence to back this up. For all we know, those white gangster types may have just been fans looking for an autograph. Paul Gallander, author of Sonny Liston, the real story behind the Ali-Liston fights, writes, Nothing in the betting patterns indicated that the fight had been fixed. In Las Vegas, the only two bookmakers who took bets on the fight said there wasn't much action. Meaning there wasn't a ton of money placed on the fight, And there certainly wasn't a big enough bet against Liston to affect what's called the odds. Here's how sports gambling works. Bookmakers don't just take bets, they set the odds. Some contests are evenly matched, meaning either side could win. But that won't pay off much for anyone. So gamblers will bet on the underdog for a richer reward. But if too much money comes in on an underdog, well, he's no longer a long shot. The bookmaker will then lower the odds so as not to lose his shirt. This is what happened in the 1919 World Series. A racketeer bet $250,000 on the White Sox to lose. This shifted the odds dramatically in favor of the other team. And sure enough, certain players on the White Sox were reportedly in on it. They underperformed, losing the game and earning the racketeer a paycheck, which was suspicious enough to trigger an investigation. Similarly, if the mob had made a large bet against Liston, a 13-to-1 favorite, the odds favoring him would have fallen. But that didn't happen. On the night of the fight, Liston remained the favorite. Regardless of the odds, the outcome of the bout was suspicious. It was over way too quickly. An easy win in what should have been a competitive, drawn-out battle. Which was why stories of that punch made their way up the chain until it reached the FBI's director, John Edgar Hoover. Coming up, the FBI investigates the fix. Hi, it's Molly. In case you haven't heard, Parcast has an intense new original series I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes the dark, disturbing, and deadly side of medicine. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Murden as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history. 
or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders Free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. The 1965 rematch between Ollie and Liston seemed like classic movie lore. A punch few saw land, and a once indomitable fighter literally taking a dive. It was enough to raise flags for the FBI. Just two days after the rematch, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover issued a memo to multiple bureau offices stating... In view of the wide publicity with attendant allegations of a fixed fight, you should discreetly contact confidential sources and informants for any information they may have pertaining to this matter. FBI memos released 50 years later included interviews with Houston gambler Barnett Maggots. He had made astonishing claims about bookmaker Ash Resnick. Some background on Resnick... He was president of the Thunderbird Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The establishment was partially owned by mobster Meyer Lansky, the man who, along with Lucky Luciano, created the modern national crime syndicate. Resnick also happened to be close friends with Sonny Liston. Before he became a boxing champion, Liston worked as Resnick's personal bodyguard. In Maggot's interview with the FBI, he claimed that Resnick and Liston each made $1 million by betting against Liston in his first fight against Ali. It was a huge accusation. However, Maggot's offered no evidence to back it up. The FBI memos did include claims from other people saying that Ash Resnick was the fix point of the two fights. But for some reason, the investigation trailed off. According to one memo, dated January 4, 1966, the FBI office in Liston's hometown, Denver, Colorado, wrote to Director Hoover. They wanted permission to interview Liston. But Hoover denied their request, saying, if no specific information is obtained that the fight was fixed, Denver should not interview Liston at this time. The rest of the memo was redacted, which leaves us wondering, why would Hoover deny an interview with the subject of a criminal investigation? 
It's possible Hoover thought Liston wouldn't be honest if he was questioned. After all, Liston wasn't forthcoming in his Senate testimony back in 1960. Or maybe Hoover wasn't really interested in stirring up trouble with the mob over a little gambling. The FBI director was known to be most interested in stopping so-called real crimes like murder and drug trafficking. At that point, it had also been six months since the investigation began. The FBI had little to show for it, and Hoover may have been sick of hitting dead ends. For all we know, he wanted to put the whole thing to rest. Or maybe he was persuaded to change his mind. Reporter Pete Hamill alleged that mobster Meyer Lansky had shown him proof of Hoover's alleged homosexuality in 1971. If this is true, Lansky may have used this information to keep the FBI away from his people, including Ash Resnick. If that's the case, it worked. Because on June 27, 1966, the Denver office issued a memo to Hoover. They confirmed that they were conducting no further investigation in this matter. At this point, offices in Boston, New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia had already bowed out. They all claimed to have found nothing indicating a fix. In any case, the question remains, did the mafia coerce Sonny Liston to take a dive or didn't they? The mob's influence over Liston is pretty undeniable, so it's possible. But the biggest hole in this theory is still that the odds never moved, and they should have if a big bet was made against Liston. All right, so the mafia might not have been involved, but that doesn't mean Liston didn't throw the fight of his own volition. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. Without any undue influence from the mafia, Liston simply gave up. He had, after all, quit the first fight with Ali, alleging a shoulder injury, which suggests this may have been less of a rematch and more of a replay. Paul Gallander, author of Sonny Liston, The Real Story Behind the Ali-Liston Fights, wrote, Nobody in boxing sincerely believed that a six-inch punch from Ali could fell a pillar of strength like Sonny Liston. Everyone knew Sonny threw the fight, but nobody has ever known why. Even the contenders disagreed on the phantom punch. In an honest moment after the fight, Ollie admitted he didn't think he hit Liston hard enough. But Liston insisted on Ollie's power, telling a post-fight press conference, I didn't think he could hit that hard. It seemed obvious that Sonny Liston had thrown the fight. But if the mob didn't pay or coerce Liston to take a dive, why did he do it? There are a couple of potential reasons, but let's start with the obvious one, money. Liston was deeply in debt. He'd earned millions in his four title bouts, but by the time his managers each took a share, expenses were paid, and income tax was factored in, there would have only been a fraction left over. With the odds 13 to 5 in favor of Liston, a significantly large bet against him would net an enormous payout. A $10 wager would have earned the better $26, and a $100,000 wager would award someone more than a quarter of a million dollars. Of course, Liston couldn't place a bet against himself. That would be prematurely admitting defeat. 
Instead, he'd need someone else to do it for him. One large bet of, say, $100,000 would certainly lower the odds. But Liston would have had to spread this around in a series of smaller bets so as to not draw attention, meaning he would need accomplices. Still, there's a saying. One person can keep a secret, but not two. And if you follow that logic, this plan would have been too risky for Liston. You also have to remember that Liston is literally fighting for the title of heavyweight champion, which is worth a ton of money. If Liston regained the title, he would be considered one of the richest men in sports. In 1965, Willie Mays was the highest paid baseball player, and he earned $105,000 a year. That's equal to over $850,000 today. And Liston was paid 10 times more than that just for his first fight with Ali. Regaining the title would have been worth millions, way more than Liston could win by betting against himself, even after he paid out his managers. All in all, it's not likely that Liston allowed himself to be defeated for money. But it is possible that his physical condition had something to do with it. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that Liston wasn't in great shape come May 1965. The fight had originally been scheduled for November of 1964, but it was postponed six months on account of Ali's emergency hernia surgery. It takes months for a boxer to get in shape, and their training regimen is designed to peak at precisely the right time just before the fight. If you have a fight coming up, you don't want to peak too soon. For Liston, the six-month delay would have been a serious setback. At his age, it would be impossible to simply maintain his conditioning. He would have had to wait it out, then start all over as the fight drew closer. Liston's age was also a factor. Officially, he was 33 years old, but Liston wasn't entirely sure of his birth date. For all anyone knows, he could have been much older. A 1962 FBI memorandum stated Liston's birth as 1927. That would make him a full 15 years older than 23-year-old Ali, He would have almost been 40, which is ancient for a boxer. In that case, Liston would have been in no shape to last 15 rounds against a younger, faster Ali. It's possible he chose what Shakespeare called the better part of valor, discretion. He made the prudent decision to lose so as not to get seriously hurt. Even Liston's trainers took pains to conceal how out of shape he was, New York Times columnist Arthur Daly reported that Amos Lincoln, a sparring partner of Liston's, was paid an extra $100 to let Liston batter him in a public sparring session. Daly wrote, He gave Lincoln a pretty good thumping, but his camp followers were not misled. They knew in their hearts the old man didn't have it anymore. Former heavyweight champion Joe Lewis also witnessed Liston's training. And when his friend mentioned betting on Liston, Lewis replied, Ash, if you bet on Sonny, you're throwing your money away. They killed him in training. He can't fight at all. The element of surprise may also have had something to do with it. Even if Ali's phantom punch didn't land hard, 
it may have caught Liston completely off guard, causing him to fall. It's also possible that Liston had simply had enough. Years later, he told sports journalist Mark Cram, There weren't no fix. I could have got up. I just didn't want to. That guy Ali was crazy. I didn't want anything to do with him. But maybe there was more to it than that. Barney Baker, another unsavory Liston associate, believed Liston's early exit had something to do with drugs. Baker claimed the boxer was taking painkillers constantly to treat the bursitis in his shoulder. And Liston's personal physician, Dr. Robert Bennett, confirmed that he'd treated Liston's bursitis for two years leading up to the first fight with Ali. But Bennett says he never prescribed anything stronger than cortisone. Yet Barney Baker claimed Liston's pain had gotten worse. He said Liston relied on heavier drugs to numb the pain. Baker said that a baby could have pushed Liston over. Drugs and a baby punch, or not. The question still remains, did Liston throw his own fight? If he did, he didn't seem to be trying to win a bet. No one ever came forward saying they placed a bet on Liston's behalf, and the odds never changed. The most likely explanation for the self-sabotage theory came from sports writer Jimmy Cannon. He said, I don't think it was a fix in the sense that money was passed, but I don't think Liston tried as hard as he should. He just took a punch and got out of there. It does seem plausible. Oh, I take 15 rounds of punishment out of shape for the same outcome. But what if there was something more going on in the small town of Lewiston, Maine, leading up to the fight? Something that could have terrified Liston to his core. Next, we'll see if the Nation of Islam threatened Liston to throw the fight. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Sonny Liston went down easily in his May 1965 rematch against Muhammad Ali. There were instant rumors that he was paid off by the mob or had bet against himself. But an FBI investigation never found any conclusive evidence. It seemed more likely that Liston was out of shape, causing him to go down with the first meaningful punch. But Liston's friends and family argued that he just wasn't the kind of guy to quit. He had too much pride. The only way Liston could have fallen and chosen to never get up was if he had been scared into it. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number three. Members of the Nation of Islam threatened to kill Liston if he beat their champion, Muhammad Ali. They may even have kidnapped Liston's wife and son to demonstrate their point. To understand this theory, we'll have to back up to early 1964, 
one year before the Liston-Ali rematch. Malcolm X, a civil rights activist, had been ostracized by his former group, the Nation of Islam. The nation had declared him persona non grata for his alleged self-aggrandizement. In March of 1964, Malcolm X announced his break with the nation. This ended his own friendship with Muhammad Ali, who was still a member of the group. Less than a year later, on February 21, 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated. Members of the Nation of Islam were later arrested for his murder. By this point, many Malcolm X supporters had already turned against Muhammad Ali for his fallout with Malcolm. And in the months between the murder and Ali's rematch with Liston, media reports insinuated that Malcolm's supporters would target Ali at the fight. In response, the FBI posted a 12-man, 24-hour security detail around Ali. Time magazine also reported a security force of 300 posted inside and outside St. Dominic's Hall in Lewiston, Maine. Police Chief Joseph Farrand declared, I don't want Lewiston to go down in history as the place where the heavyweight champion was killed. But Ali wasn't the only one in danger. Sonny Liston claimed he too was receiving death threats, and they weren't coming from the Malcolm X supporters. They were from the Nation of Islam. Having Muhammad Ali in their fold raised the Nation of Islam's profile. He was a great public relations tool and they couldn't risk him losing the title to Liston. Liston feared the unpredictable nation for years. TV veteran Bob Sheridan said the boxer was scared to death of them. And despite his own intimidating reputation, Liston seemed to avoid all contact with the group. So now Liston had two reasons to worry. The nation wanted to ensure he would lose so that Ali could keep his title, And if Malcolm X supporters were targeting Ali during the fight, it was possible they could accidentally shoot Liston. Allegedly, Ali even stoked Liston's fears by saying, Sonny, I'm fast and you're slow. You might catch one of them bullets. So Liston hired armed guards for his camp. He even appointed a food taster. But that didn't keep members of the nation from lurking about Lewiston in the days before the fight. It's believed that three days before the fight, two Nation of Islam members visited Liston at his camp headquarters. According to Gallander's book, witnesses reported them having a brief private conversation. Afterwards, Liston was described as catatonic. He sleepwalked through a sparring session and got tangled up while jumping rope. Trainer Joe Polino later claimed that Liston's two visitors had threatened to kill him if he won. Liston would confirm this later to boxer Peter Keenan, telling Keenan that at one point, nation members had put a gun to his head. Then, on the day of the fight, Ash Resnick's wife Marilyn was unable to reach Liston's wife Geraldine at her hotel. This worried Marilyn, and when she expressed her concern to Joe Lewis's wife, Martha, the woman replied, It's the black Muslims. They have her and the boy. Meaning Liston's son, Bobby. 
Marilyn told author Paul Gallander that she believed Nation members were in the hotel room with Geraldine and Bobby and that they weren't letting Geraldine answer the phone. Marilyn also said Geraldine was allowed to leave her room for the fight, but Bobby was nowhere to be seen, leading her to suspect he was still hostage. She knew Geraldine wouldn't have left him alone in the hotel room by choice. It certainly sounds plausible coming from Marilyn, but as far as anyone knows, Geraldine never said a thing about the Nation of Islam or her son being kidnapped. Regardless, the death threats against Muhammad Ali were very real, and Ali knew they affected Liston in the ring. In his autobiography, Ali wrote, Liston was looking around at all those bulletproof shields. He thought if somebody was out to shoot me, that they might miss me and hit him. Liston himself confirmed this shortly before he died. He told writer Mark Cram that he was scared of being shot, so he stayed down. Liston asserted, It weren't Clay, it was the Muslims. I got word, inside stuff, they were going to kill me. But keep in mind that this was the same Mark Cram to whom Liston had earlier said, I could have got up. I just didn't want to. That guy Ali was crazy. This seemed to be a larger theme with Liston. His claims about the fight were always contradictory. However, Liston did tell others about the kidnapping. Days after the fight, he allegedly told his friend Johnny Toko, The Muslims made me throw it. They kidnapped the kid. But Liston never filed a police report over the alleged kidnapping. And again, Geraldine never spoke of it. We have only his word that it happened, along with a claim from his trainer and cut man, Joe Polino. Polino claims to have known about the kidnapping too. But he isn't exactly a trustworthy person. He later confessed to having put something on Liston's gloves to hurt Ali's eyes during their first match. Not a great track record. Besides, in all the FBI memos looking for evidence of a fix, there's not a single mention of any kidnapping. Overall, the Nation of Islam theory seems pretty loose, but it's worth noting that Liston fought 16 more times after the Ali fight, winning 14 in a row, 13 by knockout. Many consider this proof that he wasn't just a washed-up old man. He really had been part of the fix. Whatever the case, Liston never got another shot at the heavyweight title. On January 5, 1971, Geraldine returned to their Las Vegas home to find Liston dead in their bedroom. His body was already badly decomposed, and the autopsy was inconclusive. The official cause of death, according to the coroner's office, was natural causes stemming from lung congestion and heart failure. Even the date of death was ambiguous. It could only be determined as sometime before December 30th, 1970. It was ironic that the man with an unknown birth date had an equally unknowable day of death and the mystery of his departure was compounded by traces of heroin discovered during the autopsy. Except there weren't any needles in Liston's home. What's more, he was terrified of needles. 
Liston's doctor claimed he'd do anything to avoid a shot, and his dentist said Liston went so far as to refuse Novocaine. He even canceled a trip to Africa in 1963, simply because he refused to get the necessary vaccines. And Geraldine Liston firmly believed her husband wouldn't inject himself with anything. Well, that's not to say Liston was above touching other drugs besides heroin. Towards the end of his life, he was an alcoholic who dabbled in marijuana and cocaine. He was even known to sell cocaine out of several casinos, and it was rumored that he'd recently muscled into the territory of established dealers. For all anyone knew, he was killed by a jealous competitor. It may have even been the mob. Author Rob Steen believes Liston was bumped off because he was of no use to the mob anymore. Liston's best days as a ring commodity winning big or losing against long odds, were behind him. He was disgruntled and knew too much, a dangerous combination in his circle of mob associates. As Steen concluded, they decided it was too big a risk having him around. Whoever the killers were, Liston's close friends, Barney Baker and Johnny Toko, suspected the Las Vegas police were involved in covering the whole thing up. At the time, the mob controlled most of the Las Vegas casinos, and they probably had the police department in their pocket. The authorities could have chosen to cover up the murder in order to avoid an investigation that would implicate the mob. Police could have easily visited Liston's home before Geraldine came home and covered up signs of a struggle. Philadelphia sports writer Jack McKinney wrote that the police considered Liston's death good riddance and filed it away as a routine OD without troubling to investigate any further. Whatever the case, it was an ignoble end for Liston. In death, as in life, none of the conspiracies surrounding him ever added up to a conclusive answer. All anyone knew was that the final bell had rung for Charles Sonny Liston. The enigmatic boxer was gone, and whatever secrets he might have been harboring were laid to rest with him. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. Amongst many sources, we found Paul Gallander's book, Sonny Liston, The Real Story Behind the Ollie Liston Fights, helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern.
This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ken Pisani, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. Trust me, you don't want to miss the intense new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.